Well, good morning. I'm Brent. I'm one of the pastors here at Sunrise, and we're delighted you came to worship with us this morning. I want to start off with a question. So is it everything you hoped it would be? Okay. 2021, is it everything you hoped it would be? For the last six months, everybody you talk to, everybody you meet on the street says, we can't wait for this year to be over. And now we've had two and a half days. Is it everything you hoped it would be? Okay. There's a verse came to mind yesterday when I was thinking about just the changing of the years and, and this new year before us. And, and this is what we hope in. Not the changing of a year, but rather the fact that, that we worship the God of the universe. The 139th Psalm begins this way. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. You hem me in. That's our hope. We have a God that comes up behind us, and when we fail, he picks us up and he dusts us off, and by the blood of Jesus, he forgives us and cleanses us. And we also have a God that goes before us to prepare the way, to prepare our hearts for what he knows is, is in our path and what's going to happen in days ahead. And that's what my hope is, that uh, I worship and have a relationship with God that hems me in. And I pray that that would be your reality and your prayer for this year as well. So some exciting news. Uh, tomorrow morning, probably mid-morning, we're going to have an asbestos crew show up at the building and start the asbestos work. So that's, that's pretty exciting. And it won't be long after that that it'll be time to swing hammers and, and do the construction piece. So we're really excited about that. That's going to be the reality of our new year. Um, God's been in process through this whole thing and been faithful, and, and now we're going to get to see some, see some real action. And so uh, just keep that in your prayers. Uh, lots and lots of things going on in the month of January. I, I looked down the list. I, I don't think we quite have something every single day, but we certainly have a lot going on. So make sure you look in that and uh, just baptism classes. And we want to just give you opportunities to learn and grow in, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So this morning, we have Scott Mathis with us, who was a founding pastor of this church, and he's now the president of the Berean Fellowship. Um, he's in town, sort of relaxing, but we ask him to greet us and say a few words. Scott? Yep. Well, thanks, Brent. Good morning, Sunrise Church. Great to be back home. About killed us to leave this place. It really did. But uh, now uh, that I'm doing what I'm doing, I love it. And I know God's called us to uh, the presidency. Di gives her greetings. My wife, Di, uh, she is, uh, her mother is living with us. And so she's unable to travel with me um, during this season while we're um, taking care of, of Leela. You know, it takes unselfish people to grow a local church. It really does. And, and, and Goshen County is like every other county in the world. Goshen County is desperate for a healthy, life-giving church that is seeing lost people come to faith in Christ and growing up in Christ and coming to freedom in Christ. 
Goshen County is desperate for a healthy, life-giving church that is filled with Christ ones who are on mission not to make sure everybody knows their own political views, not to make sure that you need to believe in Jesus, but you have to look just like me or believe just like me. On peripheral issues, Goshen County, like every other county in the, and I don't feel picked on when I'm saying this. I'm saying this to every church, so. But Goshen County is desperate, and this church was planted with the mission that we needed to see lost people get saved and save people growing so Jesus' church will spread to the ends of the earth. And I continue to beg you, Sunrise Church, be on mission for Christ. Every church I'm dealing with through COVID and race relations is almost having to do a restart now in this new year because it feels different and it looks different and we don't even know completely who our, who our people are anymore. But friends, it is worth, Jesus is worth it. His church is worth it. We love Christ most, I believe, when we love his church as he loves his church. And so I, I just can't encourage you enough. It has been such a privilege to see how God orchestrated getting Pastor Brent here. And as you know, he is, uh, when I left to become president, I told him in Deacon's parking lot, I want you on my board of directors someday. And so now he is the chairman of directors of the entire uh, Berean Fellowship. So Brent and I stay in a lot of contact. And, and on a certain level, he's kind of my boss now, so pray for me. I'm developing this twitch with him. No, no, I love Brent, and he and I are a great team, and so I'm grateful that he felt the call of God. So let me pray, and thanks for coming out today. Howdy, God, I love you so much, totally because you first love me. Father, I thank you that you are always at work around us, and when we see you working, we can join with you and watch and see amazing things happen. And we grow up and grow out of our junk because, Jesus, you want us mature and healthy. And you want us doing all what you commanded us to do. So I pray for Sunrise Church. I pray that they would be on mission for you, Christ. I pray that they would set aside individual preferences for the good of the whole. That they would be an unselfish church. That they would be a church with a holy passion to reach the people in Goshen County, who, if they died today, face a Christless eternity in hell. Lord, that's what it's really all about. It's, it's so hard, though, Lord. We need you. We need you, Jesus, because it's so confusing right now, and we don't know what to do and what to believe, and, and it gets just awkward a lot. And we lose sight of the mission because we're wondering, should we wear a mask or not? Should we shake hands or not? It's just weird, God. So we just need your grace uh, with our own selves and with each other. And we just need you, Jesus. And we need reminded that it's about you, not us. And so we just submit to you, Christ, and we submit to one another out of reverence for you. And, and we re-accept the reality that you have made us on purpose for a purpose and we are on mission for you. Thank you, Jesus. In your precious name I pray. Amen. The beginning of a new year. That's plenty loud. Okay. <laughs>
Just want to give you a word of encouragement. As most of us, um, whenever we turn over a calendar to a new year, we decide that that's a really good time to make some changes. And that's a good thing. God desires for us to make changes and, and positive things in our life. Oftentimes through the years, as I have sought to make resolutions or New Year's resolutions, I try to do that in my own strength. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And the reality is, as believers, if we try to make changes in our lives short of God's intervention and power in our lives, then we're going to fall and we're going to fail. And so whatever things that God has laid on your heart, changes you want to make, things you want to do better, um, take them before God that can empower those changes because that's, that's where true change comes from. Matt, can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm scaring myself from behind here. So, all right. So this morning we want to start a new series. And on the front of your bulletin we have a picture um, of a picture of church history and in a picture from the back of our auditorium. And over these next few weeks, I, I want us to just spend a little bit of time talking about our history as the church, the, the kingdom view of the church, and look at how that relates to us in 2021. We know that the church of Jesus Christ has a rich history, and that through the years God has built his church um, from the time in which the church came into being in the book of Acts. The promise that Jesus made that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it has been faithfully kept by God himself. Through persecution, through years of acceptance, through wars, through political pressure, through times of prosperity, God has built his church. I was thinking this week about the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is somewhere around 2,000 years old at this point in time. Can you think of other institutions that have stood the test of time like the church has? No. I, I was thinking this week about the United States and our Constitution. About 250 years ago, our Constitution was founded and written and was a marvelous document. Where are we with that today just 250 years later? There's, and so when you think of, of the church and how God has preserved that in excess of for over 20, what, 20 centuries? That's an amazing thing. I also find that there's a benefit in looking back at history. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, talks about in, in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again, there's nothing new under the sun. And so I believe that if we retrospect in retrospect, look back in history from time to time, that there's something that we can learn and something that we can gain and perhaps uh, keep ourselves from falling into that again. So this morning, I want to just begin this series by talking and just kind of giving a brief overview of church history. And you don't need to worry. I love history, and I could talk about history all day long. But as God often does, He puts a spouse in the home with you that doesn't share the same views. And so you need to know that Bobby is my history barometer. And I know when I'm talking to her and telling her about history, whether it's recent or past history, that there's a point in time in which my enthusiasm and her interest part ways. 
And so this morning, I'm going to give you an interview, uh, 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 overview of history that I think would be within Bobby's parameters of enthusiasm versus interest. So what we want to do over the next four, four weeks, and, and what I'm going to use as kind of the, the springboard for, for our series, is a, a methodology that was used by the early church for teaching and instruction. And as it is with all methods, there was some great benefit to it. It has foundations within the Bible in terms of, of how it was, was put together and used, but it also has come to a place in history in which it's been misused, and too much emphasis is put on it. And this is the, we're going to look over the next four weeks at four or five different questions from the Westminster Catechism, the shorter catechism. And the catechism is nothing more than a teaching tool that was used in the post-Reformation church after the, after the, the Reformation in which Martin Luther was a, a big piece of. Catechism, the word catechism means nothing more than a method of instruction, something, a way or a manner in which they felt that it was important to, to teach the Word of God. A catechist is the instructed person. The catechumen is the one being instructed. It's all part of that same root, root word. And so as we look at the catechism over these next four weeks, we're just going to look at four or five questions at the beginning part of that document. And, and if you think about it, the methodology behind what they used and, and what brought about the catechism was very much rooted in Scripture. I mean, it's been a principle since the beginning of, of Jewish history. And it was, it was from the early days in, in which God began to intervene and, and talk and speak to man and reveal Himself to man, there, there was always a need for some way or some manner in which the truths of God, truths of God could be passed from one generation to another. And for a young believer or a young convert to be taught and brought along in terms of the faith. And that's really what the catechism was all about. If you look back in the Old Testament, um, the Jewish rabbis taught the young men from the Torah about all the traditions and all the things. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that, husband, that uh, fathers and mothers were to raise up their children in, in the fear of the Lord and to teach them when they're sitting down and when they're rising up. And, and that's all part of the methodology of passing along the Word of God. When you get into the New Testament period, Jesus did that very thing with his disciples. In the opening verses of Luke chapter 1, as Luke begins his gospel, he says, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught or you have been instructed. That's the, that's the idea of catechism or a methodology of teaching. We know that in the book of Acts that the apostles spent a great deal of time talking and teaching within the churches and training um, new believers and training potential pastors. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul in, in encourages Timothy to train up men who can, after they're trained, train others. That's all part of the history of the church and is passing along the faith. In the early church history, this continued on after the close of the Gospels, after the close of, our, of the narrative of our New Testament. And, and as the church began to grow, this process of, of, of passing along the faith and teaching new converts and neat, teaching uh, children and young believers, that continued on. But as, as many times happens within the church, we take a concept that is good and is biblical and we begin to formalize it. 
and turn it into something that is, that is, is formalized, that we can follow by rote, and we lose a lot of what it was intended to be. And so that happened through the early years of church history. From the close 100 B.C. up until 13, 1400 B.C., you saw this, this teaching and training and, and, and the way that they brought new converts and children along. You saw that become a formalized means of teaching within the church. And that was called a catechism. And, and different churches had different methodologies that they used. And, and, and it, at that time, by the end, just before the, the Reformation period, it had become formalized in the church, and the church alone held the strings. And so there was not any way for an individual to really become involved with that without going through the church. And that was a big part of what the Reformation was all about, is to get the hands, get the, the power and the, and the relationship with Jesus Christ back to the common man and understand what God really intended. And so when Martin Luther came along the scene and, and, and the Protestant Reformation began, there was three or four things that came out of that. And one of them was that, that it's faith alone in Christ alone. It's not, we're not dependent upon a church for our salvation or a church to give us access to God. It's faith alone in Christ alone, and we have that ability on an individual basis by the power of the Holy Spirit. Another thing that came about was to put the, the Bible into the hands of the common people because it was in, it was in Latin and, and, and the common person did not have access to the Word of God. They had to go through the church. And so part of the Reformation began the period in which the Bibles were able to be translated and printed and, and gotten into the hands of the average person. And then there became a, a refreshed or a renewed emphasis in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we're not dependent upon a church or a denomination, but rather we have access. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and through him we have access to the Holy Father because of the blood that Jesus shed. And so after this Reformation, there became a need for how do we teach these new truths and how do we educate the younger generation of this new, of this renewed, I guess I should call it a renewed faith. And that was found in the Catechism. The catechisms came about um, in the mid-1500s to 1600s, and there's lots and lots and lots of different variations of them. Martin Luther actually had one that he wrote himself specifically for the purpose of training young people, children in the faith. It was called the smaller catechism. And so when the catechism came into place, and, and what we're going to look at, the shorter Westminster Catechism, when it came into place, it was nothing more than a renewed emphasis about the, from the biblical principle that went clear back to Jewish history. It wasn't anything new about it. It just was a new methodology because they knew that if they did not promote and educate and train up children and new believers, that the faith would be lost. And so that's what it's all about. And so the roots of that went clear back into the Old Testament. The catechism is nothing more than a series of questions. And the reason that they use questions is because a question stimulates discussion. Whereas just memorizing a, a phrase or memorizing a, a particular thing, that it just, it's easy for that to just become rote in your mind. When we ask a question, then that stimulates discussion. It encourages the interpretation of verses for a practical application. You know, that's one thing that, that as we grow in our faith in Christ, um, if, if, you, if you 
dive right in and read a lot of the Word of God and you obtain a lot of knowledge and, and, and familiarity with the Word of God, that's the first step. The second step of that process is for God to enable you to, to be able to practically express that knowledge that you have. How, how do I take the principles that I know are true from the Word of God and how does that look from Monday through Saturday? And that's why another piece of, of why they used the catechism, because it, it helped them understand the practical application of what the, of what the Bible had to say. In reality, the catechism is a, is a valid teaching tool even for today. Um, there are versions of that that are in modern English. It asks a question. It gives a scriptural text that goes along with it. And if you have older kids in the home or perhaps you yourself, it, it's a valid way to learn and study the Word of God in just a little bit different format than what you're used to. So this morning we want to look at the first question of the Westminster, Shorter Westminster Catechism. The first question, and it's interesting that of all the things that they chose to begin this document with, this they deem to be the most important. And so we want to start with that. And I believe that's written in your bulletin. The question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why are we here? Why did God create us? What is our purpose on this earth? What is the chief end of man? Well, in order for us to look at that, I think we need to go back, first of all, to the early, earliest accounts in the book of Genesis. Because whenever you want to know what the purpose is for something, you go back and look at the beginning of that thing. I don't care what it is in creation, tools or different things that, that man has invented. It was invented with a purpose in mind. And if you go back to the beginning, it helps understand that purpose. And so let's look, first of all, at the creation process about man. Genesis 1, chapter 26, verses 26 and 27 this is at the close of the rest of the creation account. God had created everything else, the world and the plants and the animal kingdom and the stars in the sky, light, everything else. And at the end of that process, he creates man and woman. Verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So from the very beginning, from the first mention of man and, and woman being on the face of the earth by God's creation, we see that man was unique. That man was unique and different from all the rest of creation. God gave man and woman domination over the rest of creation. There was something unique about that creative process and what his intention were, was. It's significant that in verse 27 it says, In the image of God he created them. It doesn't say that about anything else in creation. Nothing else in creation does it say was created in the image of God other than man and woman. What does that word image mean? I love the, the story that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 20. You remember the count that the Pharisees came and tried to trick him as to whether or not that it was right for, him to pay, for them to pay taxes. And remember Jesus', Jesus um, response was, whose image is on the coin? And the answer was, well, Caesar's. 
And so Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And so that word image is used. And so what does that portray? As, as you looked at a coin in that day, it had a, a picture or a graven or some kind of a raised image of the, of, the, of the Caesar at that time. It wasn't the Caesar himself, but as soon as you looked at that coin, you knew who that was. You knew whose picture or image that was. That's exactly the way God created us. When we fulfill our purpose and when we recognize our purpose before God, when people look at us, they see the image of the Creator, the fact that we are unique in creation, and God made us different from everything else in all of creation. The second thing that is unique about us is that we have the ability to have a relationship with the Creator. Nothing else in the rest of creation has that ability. If you look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we see a picture, and this is post-fall, after the fall, but it tells us what that relationship was like prior to the fall. Genesis 3.8, then man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God was walking in the garden. Prior to Adam and Eve sinning, there was an open relationship and communication between the Creator God and His creation, His unique creation, man and woman. There was an open relationship. The ability to relate to and to communicate with the Creator of the universe, that open communication, no other thing in creation, no other created being had that ability. The other thing that is unique about man and woman in that relationship with the Creator is that it was an eternal relationship. The rest of the animal kingdom after the fall was subject to death, and, and all of the living beings, all the living things die at some point in time. Man was given an eternal soul. And that's why in that question where it says, what is our chief end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? That forever peace is unique to man's creation, of God's creation of man and woman. Enjoy Him forever. So we have an eternal being, an eternal soul that, that God put within us, that that, that, that soul is going to spend an eternity somewhere, either in the presence of God because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, or in hell because we have chosen to reject the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So from the very beginning, we see a different purpose in man versus the rest of creation. God did something something special when He created us, and it's he had something special in mind for us as well. And so how do we live? How do we live to the glory of God? I love the passage in, in Psalms chapter 19 because this is a picture of how the rest of creation glorifies God, brings glory to God. Psalm chapter 19 and the first six verses. It says, For the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out unto all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like the bridegroom coming out of His chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run His course. It rises at one end of the heaven and makes His circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. 
So how does the rest of creation bring glory to its creator? By being what God created it to be. As we look out in, this, in the nighttime sky and we see the myriad of stars, a few nights ago we saw the alignment of two planets and the, and the brilliant light that came out from that. And as we look out into those things, there's no spoken word, there's not a sound, and yet it portrays the glory and the grandeur of the Creator. Not a word is spoken. Day after day, as we see the cycle of the earth rotating around the sun and the moon in, in conjunction with that, it gives glory to the Creator that with such intricate detail put all those things in place. Think even of the fact that, that this, this ball that we live on, the earth, is exactly the right distance away from the sun to allow life to be sustained. The heavens declare the glory of God. They have no speech. They have no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet... The glory of God is seen day after day after day. So what does it look like for us? What does it look like for us, the, the pinnacle of God's creation, to bring glory to Him? The first thing we see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Catch up with my notes here. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, we read this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. How do we fulfill our purpose? How do we glorify God? It's as simple as anything and everything we do, no matter how small or large, needs to be with the thought in mind that we want to give glory to the God that made us. The context of this is talking about the believer's freedom and, and, and what it's right or wrong, whether it's right or wrong to eat or drink certain things. And, and Paul's response was, do it all for God's glory. When you go to work in the morning, go for God's glory. When you sit down for a meal, give thanks to God for what He's provided and give Him glory. When you do this, when you do that, within your marriage, within, as you parent, do it all for God's glory. That's how we fulfill the purpose that God has given to us. In the smallest things, do it for God's glory. The second way that we bring God glory is in community. How do we live with one another in a way that brings glory to God? We find the answer to that in Philippians chapter 2 as we look at the example that Jesus gave us of how to live. Philippians chapter 2 beginning with verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So how do we bring glory to God? How do we fulfill our purpose as we walk in community with other people? 
It says, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit or vain conceit. How do we bring glory to God? We don't live for ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. We live for the benefit of those around us, and that, in, 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 in contrast, brings glory to the God that created us. Jesus was a perfect example of that. Look at what he had and what he possessed and what he gave up when he came to earth as an infant to ultimately die on the cross. We give glory to God when we don't live for ourselves, but rather as servants to those that God has placed around us. Not out of selfish ambition, but as servants. So why did the early church put such emphasis on understanding the purpose for which God created us? Because it is at the very center of who we are. I had a, a little bit of time this week to, to work in, in the shop and in my garage. And, and as I was thinking about purpose and, and, and all the different parts of, of, of this message this morning, I thought about, you know, I have a, a whole toolbox full of tools. And I can think of oftentimes in the heat of the moment or in the heat of a need that I'll use a crescent wrench as a hammer or a pipe wrench is a hammer, or just, you know, it's, it's handy, and so... And what's the long-term consequences of that? When you get ready to adjust the crescent wrench, it doesn't work anymore. Why is that? Because it wasn't being used according to the purpose that it was designed. And we can live, and we can move, and we can do out things outside of the purpose that God has for our lives, but the long-term consequences of that are not good, are not good. And in contrast to that, when you think of tools and other things that you use every day, when we use them in accordance to the purpose for which they were designed, how efficient and awesome that is. It just works. It just fits. It's no different with us. It's no different with us. If, if I spend my life pursuing the things that I want and accumulating things to myself, it's never going to give me the fulfillment and joy that God designed. But if I choose to live to the glory of God and at the core of my being, when I get out of bed every morning, I bow my knee and I say, God, I want to be used for your glory today. In the conversations that I have and the words that I speak, and the actions that people see, the meditations of my heart, I want to bring glory to you. And if we do that, then we as God's pinnacle of creation will fulfill what God intended for us to be. And, and because of that, we'll have joy. That, the second part of that phrase, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, if we're walking with God's glory as our purpose, there is joy in that. Irregardless of the circumstances, irregardless of what's going on around us, there's joy in that because we're in a right relationship with the creator of the universe. We're fulfilling what God intended us to do. I went back several times this week to those verses in Psalm chapter 19. And I tried to put that in perspective of how the rest of creation glorifies God and how I glorify God. And it's, it, it struck me that it's only in my fallen heart 
that I choose to walk away and not glorify God. You don't see that in the rest of creation. You, we see a fallen creation that has a bondage to decay, but you don't see a rebellious star. I mean, you just, you just they, they fulfill, they, they do what God designed them to do. They don't have to say a word. You look at them, there's a creator God. Is that true of my life? Is that true of my life? As, as people look at me, even without me saying a word, do they see the image of the Creator? The way I live my life for myself or for those around me, do they see the image of the Creator? And if they do, that brings glory to God. That brings joy and fulfillment to my life, not just for now, but for eternity. The essence of finding purpose, first of all, for all of us, comes down to the fact that because Adam and Eve fell, we can't fulfill God's purpose unless we're in a right relationship with Him. Prior to the fall, it was easy. God walked in the garden, man and woman walked alongside of Him. There was nothing between them. But once they sinned, that separated them. And so the first step in, in my and in our beginning to fill our, my purpose for God is to recognize that I'm separated from God and it's only by a relationship with Jesus Christ that I can be in that right relationship. And so if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do that. What a great way to start the new year, to just bow yourself before the God of creation and say, you're holy and I'm not. I accept Jesus as my Savior I want to be right in your eyes by His blood. I want to serve Him. I want to make Him the centerpiece of my life. That's the beginning step if you don't know Christ as, as Lord. One of the other things that I thought about this week as we think about the catechism is there, if there's lots and lots of, of churches in the past and, and even today that put a great deal of faith in, in the fact that, that you've been taught and instructed in the catechism and in, in this method of, of instruction to the extent that, that the relationship with Jesus Christ has been lost, that, that there's, there's salvation and assurance that's found in knowing these principles and having this knowledge, and that's not the pathway to God. Knowledge is not the way that we come before a holy God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. And, and instruction and knowledge and all those things help us in our walk and encourage those around us and, and bring up new believers in the faith. But that knowledge cannot save us. Salvation comes by kneeling our heart and acknowledging our sin before God. And then the knowledge is of great benefit but not as a means of assurance or salvation. And so maybe some of you have been brought up in, in, in that kind of a background. The knowledge is a great thing because the, the catechism and all these things that our founding fathers used were, were, were founded on the Bible. I mean, they're biblical scriptural principles, but they can't become more important than what they are. Knowledge cannot save us. So I would encourage you today, as you think about your life at the beginning of this new year, what is your purpose? What are you living for? If someone were to, from the outside looking in, look at your life, what would they see? 
Would they see someone that has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and desires every day to not live for themselves, but to live for the benefit of those around them? That's the example of Jesus. That's living to the glory of God. What is the wordless revelation? What is the wordless message that we give as we interact and we walk with people and we serve people around us? What are we saying even though we're not saying anything? Does that bring glory to our Creator? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the many men and women throughout the history of the church that have stood on the principles of, of your word and have lived and died for it so that we could be here this morning gathered in this safe place and enjoy music and the teaching of your word and fellowship together. God, you've been so faithful to preserve your church and to grow it. And I pray, Father, that as we begin this new year, that you would just spark a fire within each one of us, that we need to be living for your glory. We don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. We don't know what circumstances are going to come our way, what changes in the political situation, what realities are going to be there. But we know that if we're walking and living to bring glory to you, that we're going to have joy in that, that you're going to cause us to feel fulfilled with the hope of eternity to come. We pray, Father, that we, like the rest of creation, would pour forth speech and bring glory to you, our Creator. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.